The Shroud of Turin is either the greatest hoax of history, or it is the most precious relic of all Christendom. Welcome to the Catholic Podcast. I'm your host for this episode, Joe Heschmeyer, and I'm here with Sebastian D'Amico, an instructor at the Public Family School of Faith Institute. Uh, we're talking today, as part of our physical case series, on the Shroud of Turin. So Sebastian, you want to start us off by telling us what the Shroud of Turin is? Sure. The Shroud of Turin is a linen cloth with a very striking image of a crucified man that many people believe to be the actual burial cloth. Jesus. Um, there's some. There's a lot of debate about that, and the the details of this could take a lifetime to get into. But that's the short version. Okay, let's talk a little bit about that debate. So, what's describe kind of the best case scenario, what it is, and the worst case scenario, what it is. Sure, that's a great question. The best case scenario would be that it's actually the cloth that all four gospel writers. Um, tell about in their Gospels. So all, all four Gospels tell of Jesus being taken down from the cross and wrapped in linen cloths that Joseph of Arimathea um, had. And the, the question is, is this cloth that cloth? Is this cloth that we have that's been in Turin um, for the last 300 years, essentially? 500, 400, excuse me, 500 years. Um, is, it, is it the same cloth? In the worst case scenario, it's a forgery that was made in the Middle Ages. Um, and if it is a forgery, that that means it must be, I think, with, with anyone who's, who's looked at this shroud and, and studied it, the absolute most amazing icon ever of Jesus. Yeah, it's striking. So John Paul II, when he was in Turin, uh, had some really... I've, I've found them very thoughtful comments to make, where he basically says there's nothing to lose but a lot to gain with the Shroud. He says, the Shroud is a challenge to our intelligence. It first of all requires of every person, particularly the researcher, that he humbly grasp the profound message it sends to his reason and his life. The mysterious fascination of the Shroud forces questions to be raised about the sacred linen and the historical life of Jesus. Since it is not a matter of faith, the Church has no special competence to pronounce on these questions. She entrusts to scientists the task of continuing to investigate, so that satisfactory answers may be found to the questions connected with this sheet, which, according to tradition, wrapped the body of our Redeemer after he had been taken down from the cross. The Church urges that the Shroud be studied without pre-established positions that take for granted results that are not such. She invites them to act with interior freedom and attentive respect for both scientific methodology and the sensibilities of believers. But then he goes on and says, for the believer, what counts above all is that the shroud is a mirror of the gospel. In fact, if we reflect on the sacred linen, we cannot escape the idea that the image it presents has such a profound relationship with what the gospels tell us of Jesus' passion and death that every sensitive person feels inwardly touched and moved at beholding it. So in other words, the church doesn't have some official infallible position on the authenticity of the shroud. That's a scientific and a historical question. That's absolutely correct. And I think one of the the most liberating aspects of the Shroud and some of the best presentations I've ever seen on it are the ones that give the audience member the prerogative of deciding for themselves what they think it is. And I think that has to be said at the outset of any time we talk about the Shroud. 
um, because it really is it, it, it's a it's something that every person has to deserves to make an informed decision about. Yeah, and it, it's striking too. You know, you mentioned that if it is a, a hoax, if it is a forgery, that still because it draws us to the reality of the situation, that it's not worthless. That it, as strange as that sounds, even a, a forged shroud, which would be disappointing in a lot of ways, right, uh, could still be a good object of, of contemplation. And yeah, there's I'd say two things to that. First of all, the primary reason it's of great value to any Christian or non-Christian for that matter is because it fires the imagination around the events of Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and, and Easter Sunday. It just gets, it's, it's like watching a movie, but it's all in your understanding and unpacking of it. But secondly, even the most cursory glance, even if it was a hoax, as you say, the most cursory understanding of the actual image itself presents us with scientific puzzles that are are not easily explained, even from an artistic standpoint. Um, I mean, t- take, for example, the fact that there's the, the, the scientific research has confirmed that there's no pigments, dyes, or paints on the image part of the shroud at all. How, how, does, how does one create an image like this in the Middle Ages without recourse to those things? It's it is just baffling, if for no other reason the artistic merits itself, um, and it, but and again, all of that is second to what it, where it brings us to ponder about the passion. You know, one of the things that strikes me about it is you know imagining for a moment that it is a hoax. You just think, what a bizarre life decision uh, the forger must have made. Someone with that level of skill that they can make such an impressive. Uh, Christ-like image right. on linen without using pigment or oil. You know, like, somehow they did this. They had the makings of an amazing artistic career. Right. And instead apparently made one thing and then just returned to anonymity. Or never, never left anonymity. Yeah, yeah, never <laughs> even got the credit for it. It's it's absolutely astounding. I mean, there, there's there's a million things that you could give as examples of it. But, for example, there's there's been dust... Um, the, the geological research on the shroud has discovered dust that is only native to 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 the Holy Land, and specifically the steps that make up the temple, the temple steps of the old temple. Wow. I mean, at the very least, this artist cared enough. If he if he was a forger, he cared enough to go harvest the dirt and put it not just anywhere on the <laughs> shroud, but specifically where Jesus would have fallen on his feet. And on his knees and on his nose. <laughs> I mean, th- that right. that attention to detail alone merits remarks and, and pondering. Who would ca- who would care enough about it? To and why why would they do? Like, why would they say, you know, if I'm going to forge this, I really need to get actual Holy Land dust so that later on, right. when they're doing carbon dating and everything else, right. this way it'll check out. I mean, right. that's a pretty bizarre. It is. It it is. Well, you know, let's actually let's talk briefly about the carbon dating, if you don't mind. Sure. Because I, I know that's one of the things people often ask about. Can you tell me anything about that? Yeah. So in 1978, there was the most in-depth scientific research study on the Shroud called the Shroud of Turin Project, also called um, STURP, the STURP Project. And it really raised the awareness of the Shroud to... 
ma- massive level scientifically. Right. But then what occurred in 1980s, in the 1980s, there was official um, carbon testing that was done mm-hmm. on the shroud. And they discovered that they dated the, the shroud to the Middle Ages. Okay. So for many people, um, and, and I don't think, we can't fault them for it. Mm-hmm. it they, that kind of closed the door on the shroud for a huge chunk of the scientific population. And um, and I think that's, that that is a valid position to take on it. Right. Um, it, it is worth, though, mentioning that the... There's more to the shroud, again, as we've said, just from the artistic merits alone, that still puzzle the science at that moment. Mm-hmm. But that's 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 the how would someone at that time make of... the image? I mean, for example, consider this for a moment: the the shroud itself is uh, it's about the the thickness of a paperclip. Mm-hmm. Okay, imagine you took a magnifying glass or a, a microscope and zoomed in on a cross-section of that cloth. Mm-hmm. It would look something like if you had a handful of straws and you were looking down at the top of them, you know, you'd see a bunch of holes, kind of like a honeycomb. Yeah. Right? Well, imagine um, that the image is only on the surface of the top and the bottom of that one thread. It's not in the middle of the thread. What, what does that mean? It means that you know, if I were, if I had a uh, a, a nice pen, right, yeah. an ink pen on a piece of cloth, mm-hmm. I would put the pen down, and the ink would just be it bleed through. It would bleed through everything. Well, this image did not bleed through. There's no bleeding through of any. Again, there's no ink. There's no dye. There's no pigment. So, how on earth would a forger create an image on a piece of cloth? The, the the density of a paperclip, the thickness right, of a paperclip, right. that only goes on the front and the back of the cloth and not through the middle. This this is what I mean. The the, the image itself poses such... Yeah, it's issues. hard to imagine how a forger at the time could have done it. And again, like why they would have done it. Right. Um, it, it does seem somewhat like a motiveless crime. I mean, to be sure, I think we have to say there were forgeries in the Middle Ages. Absolutely. And there were people who made money off of forgeries. Mm-hmm. Um, but this seems like such an incredible and elaborate sort of attempt that it, it does kind of boggle the mind from the perspective of a hoax. C- consider this um, for the image. There's, And this is kind of the, the heart of it. If, if one were trying to explain this, there are, once you study the image itself on the shroud, there are 18 different facets of this image now any given uh hypothesis of how this image was made typically accounts for a handful of those but when you you say facets of the image what do you mean so um the the super the this what i was just describing the superficiality would be one aspect of this image um another aspect of the image is like would the dirt on there be another aspect or uh that not not so much because okay. th- that's not the image proper. Oh, um, this what I refer to here would be things like the way the the body maps onto the cloth, mm. um, the way that the parts of the face. Uh, again, th- imagine if I were to paint my face with with toothpaste. Okay, and you're to take a cloth 
and put it over my face and you were to remove it, you would see a distortion in the image. Right. Right? Because you would see my cheeks direct all mapped out right flush up against my nose. It would just look funny. Right. Right? Well, there's that's what one would expect if I took a, an image of my face and, and just used ink or something or just laid it over a corpse. Mm-hmm. But that's not how this image looks on the shroud. The shroud, the image maps directly, almost vertically through the, sh- the shroud itself. It's so perplexing. So, so now, you, now you've got two of the 18 things, right? You've got the superficiality of the image and the fact that it doesn't map mm-hmm. like, like the way a piece of, like a painted face would. Um, the fact that there's no ink. The fact, the, these are right. the details. Right, so, okay, so you've got those 18 things. Yeah. And you say that the best explanations for a hoax account for how many of them? It depends on the on the theory, but no, there are, there's really only a handful of hypotheses that even pretend to get to all of them. Okay, and those are some pretty remarkable. So it seems like there's a lot of arguments against it being a hoax, just because it would be such, a, or against it being a forgery, because it would be so elaborate, especially given kind of the time and place. Yes. Um, but what, I guess what would, what would you say on the other side to those who bring up things like the carbon dating? You know, I think the most edifying thing I ever heard on this subject was from Dr. John Jackson. Dr. John Jackson was the lead scientist that led the STIRP project in 1970. Okay. And many times people will say, well, we should just get another carbon dating thing. We mm-hmm. should get, clearly the carbon dating was, was wrong. And a, as an audience member, as kind of a skeptical audience member, I thought, you know what, maybe these people have just got their feelings hurt and they, they're just not letting this die. Mm-hmm. But Dr. John Jackson, who I thought would stand the most pride, to, would stand to lose the most pride in this thing, said, no, really we have to take the validity of the carbon dating at its, for what it's worth. And we have to, the only way through this is with greater science. We can't just pretend to ignore the scientific data that, the carbon dating gave mm-hmm. and that coming from him spoke the most to me personally because it meant this man he's not i guess the the, the and I, I i get it it embodies the the attitude that we have to have we can't just ignore the science the right. way through this is going to be with science and that's exactly what john paul ii said exactly when he's at said. turin that yeah. Yeah. we're not just asking people to naively ignore all of the questions this raises and not just scientific ones either i mean one of the other questions you know john records a face cloth of jesus so i don't know if you want to get into that here but that's going to be one of the other objections people raise is like what about the the face cloth is this separate from the shroud or what's the connection between the two well there's a couple of of different um pieces in this in, in the tradition one of the most interesting is that it is it's a cloth that exists in Spain called the Sudarium of Oviedo. Um, it's believed to be the cloth that they laid over Christ's face. It shows up in Spain between 614 and 711 AD. They one looked at the shroud. It has the same blood type and even the blood stains match those of the back of the shroud. Wow. I mean, it's it's astounding. And if you look at them, you can look up. You can look at both under microscopes, and 
the matching of this is astounding. It means, I mean, if it's going to be a forgery, they must have forged both at the same time. That's incredible. And given that one of them is from the 7th century. Right. Unless this forger went and, like, carefully studied the other forgery and then mapped it somehow. I mean... Right. But again, it was, it was at that time, if I'm not mistaken, in the Middle Ages, this would have been held up for veneration. You can't just like go and borrow the face cloth of Jesus. Precisely. Like, I gotta go do something. I'll be back in a few weeks. Right, right. And the and maybe this is another way of dealing with uh, the issue of the carbon dating. If one takes in consideration all of the evidence, all of the other scientific evidence, which includes historical, artistic, um, the the ge- ge- geological mm-hmm. evidence, the botanical evidence, the all these different things that put them puts them together. You have the all of the material pointing to this goes far earlier than the carbon dating. Now that doesn't prove that it's the actual burial cloth of Jesus, but it does raise the question: What could have made the carbon dating? What could have skewed it that much? If it if it is skewed. And and therein lies the real discussion, um, and I think that that's that's the reasonable conversation that Christians should be invited to to consider and enter into, and non Christians too, for that matter. Okay, so let me put you on a, on the spot a little bit. Sure. What is your own personal view about it? I mean, having looked at all the evidence, have you come to any conclusions? Yeah, I think I think it's probably the real shroud, personally, but I can't impose that on anyone and, and I'm, I'll, I'm, I know there's many people who would criticize that for a number of reasons. I've got to say I'm, I'm the same way. I was more skeptical of it before and then a few years ago I had the chance to go to Turin and see the Shroud mm-hmm. and you just think how would someone have, and I mean I'm no expert on medieval forgeries. Sure. So it's a subjective analysis of having heard the evidence on both sides and saying like okay so it's not conclusive in the sense that we right. cannot say and, and the Pope was very clear this isn't a matter of faith. This is something that seems like, I mean, almost as if we were investigating a miracle. Yeah. There are going to be cases where you say, well, maybe there's something else going on here we just don't know about. And so oftentimes there's a little bit of a question mark at the end of the day. Right. Um, but yeah, it's pretty incredible. Okay, so let's talk. This is going to be one of those times where uh, the shortcomings of a podcast are clear because I want you to describe <laughs> the image. Uh, and we'll have, by the way, for those listening, in the show notes, we'll have several of the things we've mentioned here. We'll have a depiction of the shroud. Um, I think we uh, will have some of the art that depicts the shroud as well. We'll talk about that in a little bit. And just so people can really kind of delve in. So if you don't normally check out the show notes, I would encourage you to do it on this one because it's so image heavy. If you go to calfpod.com in the episodes, uh, this is episode 11. You'll be able to find links to all of what we're talking about here. Yeah. Well... I'll give it my college try. All uh, right. The probably the easiest way would be to direct you to a, a work of art by Giulio Clovio, which was made. Um, he lived between 1498 and 1578. Okay. So well within the medieval period, mm-hmm. incidentally. But he has an image um, called "Descent from the Cross with the Holy Shroud," and there's two aspects of this painting that are really um, helpful. First of all, it shows the whole shroud as it exists in one piece of cloth up at the top, an angel is holding it. And you see the front of the body, and then a little space between the top of the head and then the back of the body. And if you look underneath it, you see the explanation of why that that image is the way it is. Because 
the the body of Jesus. Um, this this shroud was a long, long rectangular strip that was easily the size of of two bodies laying, you know, top to bottom mm-hmm. in both ways. And it was folded. He was his back was laid on it, and then it was wrapped over the top of his head and across the front. So it looks like uh, like a very large taco, essentially. <laughs> It's it's the best way to explain it, right? Um, and so the image itself is of a man with his his hands crossed, and he has he has long hair. There's people that have um, have shown that it's a Jewish man, um, given by the way that the hair is taken in the back, given by the way the man is buried. It's in keeping with the Jewish burial customs of the first um, century, and not I guess it's probably worth mentioning not medieval burial customs, not medieval burial customs, not medieval cloth. That's a fascinating detail in itself. The cloth itself is unlike anything found in medieval Europe, period. There's nothing woven like it from anything surviving from Europe. We do have existent pieces of, of textile from the Middle East, from earlier, from the first, from, you know, the, the, the first millennia of around the, the time of Jesus, of cloth like this being woven, but nothing in Europe. So, and incidentally, if it was a, hypo- if it was a forgery... Um, the guy had to go and get someone to weave him some cloth. It seems things. like a very expensive forgery. Yeah, it would, it would be, again, it would be the most astounding forgery, uh, which deserves its own research <laughs> by its own rights. Right. At any rate, the, the image itself is of the back and of a front of a man who's been crucified. Um, you can see probably the, the most, the, when it entered the modern world, it was in 1898 with an Italian photographer by the name of Secondo Pia. He was the first photographer to be allowed to photograph the shroud because the, the camera had just been uh, invented. And when he developed the negatives, he the, the story is that he almost dropped the glass that it was etched on because it was so striking. The image itself, as we said before, is very faint on the, on the cloth. But once you take a photographic negative of it, it becomes startling how stark it is. And what's even more interesting is that, the, you know... And this is hard to describe verbally, um, but again, the the painting that you'll see in the show notes will explain it. The image that's on the cloth would actually be the reverse of of the man's face. Yeah, because so, I mean, if you press your face into something, exactly, it's going to be the opposite of the way your face actually looks. Right. But if you take a photographic negative, yeah, it's like you turned it back right side out again. So Two negatives making it positive. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so essentially, if you look at the photographic negative. You you are potentially looking at the face of Jesus, and the Catholic Information Center in Washington D.C., where I used to go to mass, uh, there was the, that image. There was a photographic negative of the shroud, and underneath it was a line from the Psalms: "Your face, O Lord, do I seek." Yeah. And I thought it was beautiful. And so that was on one side, and on the other side was the image of Our Lady of Guadalupe. Yeah. And so it's this idea that we have actual representations of Jesus, and then of Mary as well, right? Uh, that are given to us that we didn't just create ourselves, right? Right. Right, it would be a... <laughs> someone said, Jesus invented the selfie <laughs> with the shroud. I've never heard that. I guess he also disproved YOLO. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Both um, those things at the same time. Yeah, so he has a lot to say to millennial culture. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the theology of the shroud. So, I mean, best case scenario, and what I think both you and I are inclined to, is that this is an actual depiction of Jesus Christ. Yeah. Uh, worst case scenario, 
it's an incredibly impressive duplication of that that still seems like it has a lot right. to say to us. So right. what would you say about that? Well, um, to I think the best way into that question is to consider the medical evidence of the man in the shroud. Tell me about that. Well, um, if you look at the, the forensic evidence, the, the person, of the man of the shroud, is someone who's been crucified. It's someone who has been beaten profusely across the face. Um, it's someone who has been scourged down in his front and his back. You can see evidences of, of nail wounds coming through his hands. So, as an aside, where is the actual nail wound? Is it like more in the wrist or more in the hand? So, the only parts of the, of the hand that we see are the front of the hand, and we see the exit wound close to his wrist. Okay. There's some theories as to where the, the nail could have gone, depending on the angle, but it must, it's, it's, if, it's, if the shroud is correct, it went through a small space um, that's just above the tibia and the fibula. Mm hmm. Um, that, that there's a little space between that would have been strong enough to support a man's weight. Okay. And also, just as an aside, seems like it also corresponds with the line in John about how they didn't break a bone of his body. Right. The legs are unbroken. Um, I, I find these details striking because I don't think we ever, I, I never really consider them. The man's 5'10 and he's 170 pounds. Um, there's many of us that will, if that's, if that's true, many of us will get before our Lord and some of you might be taller than him. <laughs> And he'll still demand our attention. Um, <laughs> right. uh, small things that I just I I think are so powerful to consider. He would have been tall for a man of, of that of right that, for a Jew in the first century. In the first century, That's... he would have been a very robust man. It's a, it's a healthy body. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, a a wound that goes through his side as well. That's in keeping with the biblical narrative. Um, these the, when you really start pondering. These aspects of the of the the man of the shroud, you know, the photographer of of the of the shroud and turn of the Sturt project in eighteen seventy eight, um, who is has remained a very uh, a very big fan and friend of the shroud. He's not a Christian man. Um, he came he came to the the project thinking, you know, I'm a photographer. I'm going to disprove this and. Uh, he got to looking at the shroud, and you know, the, the second they they had a, a small window of a few days to, that they spent around the clock studying it, so every every moment was precious. He ran up to the the shroud and started looking at it, and after a long time of carefully examining it, they asked him, "Well, what, what do you think?" And he said, "Well, you know, there's only there's only one person in history that this that this shroud depicts. So the question is, is it or is it not him?" There's only one person that this could really be. Yeah, um, and that's that's really um, powerful. So, for for me, I think the theology of of the shroud. The best anecdote I can have is imagine watching the Passion of the Christ on Good Friday, and if you spend any prolonged period of time thinking about this, you're gonna you're gonna emerge from your study having been praying. Essentially, yeah. There's just no way around it. I was in a a class to help help equip presenters on this topic, and I came out of that when they sent us back to our our rooms, and I came out of my hotel room later that night, thinking the world is 
the world has to be different if this is real. You know, it, it, yeah. it really, I, I, I was walking down the street and I saw a movie theater and I saw the people going in and out and I thought, how could, how, how can we go in there? Not, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with going to movies. I am saying that once you consider the reality of this man's death, that's what I believe that, that God did for me. How, how can I be the same after it? Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned The Passion because it's one of the things I thought of as well. Like, when you watch the movie The Passion of the Christ, you don't think, I think Jim Caviezel might actually be Jesus. Yeah. But nevertheless, even though it's not really yeah. him, they do such a good job of showing the historical Jesus and what he went through that it brings the passion to life. And it reminds us that, I mean, ironically, given that this is a film, Jesus, it's not just a story. It's not just a myth or a legend. Like, this is the reality of the thing. And I think the bare words on the page, we can sometimes gloss over them. And so I think having this kind of brings it to life. Right, right. Um, another thing John Paul II said was that whoever approaches it, meaning the Shroud, is also aware the Shroud does not hold people's hearts to itself, but turns them to him at whose service the Father's loving providence has put it. Yeah. That the Shroud, it isn't about the Shroud. The Shroud is about Jesus. Right. And about the fact that the Incarnation is real, that there really was a physical death of Christ, that he really did walk around. He, I mean, the idea of having a particular height and weight, where it's not just whatever you might dream up in your imagination, but it's right. grounded in reality. Right. Right. It, it it has a similar effect of going to the Holy Land, in my experience. Um, you know, many people say to walk in the Holy Land is like the fifth gospel, right? The, the, the land itself is, is another gospel because, and I think um, having had the blessing of getting to do that, it's, it's, I, I find a very strong parallel with the shroud because you, are faced with the audacity of the claim that these places are normal places. It's the same air. It's the same atmosphere. It's the same yeah. sun. It's the same dirt and sweat. It's just in a different place. And then to say God was here and walked, you're pondering the incarnation. The shroud does the exact same thing, except in a more pointed way with the passion, death, and if it's the real shroud, I mean, think about this for a moment. This, this piece of cloth witnessed the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. It is, in a way, the, the fiber kind of connecting the two, yeah. connecting Good Friday yeah. and Easter Sunday. Yeah. I mean, only, only the tomb itself shares that. And the shroud has something on the tomb in that sense, because the shroud saw him, was closer to his death more immediately. And even then, it's only a few feet away. So, yeah, it, it's it's astounding. So I know in a lot of medieval painting, they'll set the religious scene in the backdrop of like their town or in a famous area or something. And it's a reminder to people who would have seen it at the time that, oh yeah, this is real. This is like in ordinary daily life because I think the foreignness of trying to imagine first century Judea, especially if you have never seen pictures of it or have never, you know, mm -hmm. been there or anything like that can make it all too fabulous, too storybook. Yeah. And so they said it like in their town or in a particular place where you'd be able to say, oh yeah. And like the period dress. So you'll see these Roman soldiers wearing like 15th century armor. Yeah. And that wasn't because they didn't know better. It's because they were saying like, look, yeah, Christ really became a man. Yeah. 
and like real men did this stuff to him, and he really rose from the dead. So it, it captures in kind of a fascinating way yeah. the almost paradox that this quite extraordinary man who was God yeah. lived in a very ordinary place and walked around ordinary people and probably looked pretty ordinary. You know, that line applied to him from Isaiah, that there was nothing about his demeanor to attract us to him. Yeah. He was hard to look at. Yeah. The, the children would look away from him. I, I think that to, to ponder the shroud is to ponder that. And and simultaneously, let's let's not forget this too. That I this this sometimes just I could lie awake at night and just ponder this one fact, right? One of the hypotheses um, that answers all of those details of those of of the, the characteristics of the image is one in which there is an intense effusion of light from the body. Um, so intense that it shoots through the cloth and that the cloth would become mechanically transparent, which sounds incredibly technical, but it's... Yeah, what do we mean by mechanically transparent? I'm glad you asked. Um, <laughs> it's, it's actually a concept that most Christians are familiar with, though we don't call it that. Um, we know that on in John's Gospel... It tells us how on that day, on Easter Sunday, the apostles were in the locked room. The door was shut, and Jesus appeared before them. That he came through the wall. The wall was, to put make it a scientific term, mechanically transparent. And if the body, the risen body of Jesus, had the capacity to become mechanically, could go through things, the question would then become, when did that begin? Right. And... One hypothesis um, is that that would have occurred at the moment of the resurrection. And the first thing that he went through would have been that shroud. So not only... And again, we we, postured, we, we give that hypothesis. It's completely impossible to, to reproduce. Because last time <laughs> I checked, physicists are having a hard time becoming mechanically transparent with anything. Right. But they don't have resurrected bodies. Right, they don't have that yet. So, but just to think, the shroud is witness to the most gruesome and the most horrible, and the most amazing. It's simultaneously both things. If it's real, and even if it's not, it still gets you to think about. Both right, it reminds us of of something that is real. Yeah, right. Um, you know, I think I don't have the summa in front of me, but I think what you're describing from a Thomistic standpoint. Thomas calls it subtlety of the resurrected body, the ability to pass through yeah. things. Uh, it raised, for me, an interesting question. With the rolling away of the stone, he didn't need that. I mean, we right. know he can pass into locked rooms. He can certainly walk out of the cave. He can yeah. walk through the stone. So that's for us. Yeah. It's an invitation in. Yeah, it's an invitation <laughs> in, not an escape. So he's inviting us to explore the empty tomb. And I think we could say, by extension, inviting us to explore the reality of this shroud that no longer holds his body. Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful thing, and I think it also speaks to, um, you know, as we've been talking about the the reality of the incarnation, but also the the way the church has preserved that there's been a continuous community of faith that's held up and venerated these kind of relics, right? And that these relics aren't for themselves; they point past themselves, right? Right to Jesus, and and the if the history is correct, 
the the shroud has been the most precious relic since that resurrection. That there's history of of it going into we have we have evidence of Peter having the shroud um, of it going to Antioch. After. Can you tell me a little bit about that evidence? Sure, I'm not familiar. Sure. So there's, I'd have to go. go we can put it in the show notes of, okay. of where where it's from specifically. But we have historical accounts of the cloths that were obviously very precious of of being in in possession of Peter and him taking them from Jerusalem to Antioch. One would expect that those cloths would probably not be paraded around at least early on because they would have been if they were to fall into the hands of an enemy they would have taken them and destroyed them but then very soon after um, it, it arrives in Constantinople and we actually have accounts of crusaders um, that came with that, that tragic fourth crusade mm-hmm. actually telling accounts of a church where every Good Friday the face of, of Jesus is is resurrected every Friday wow for veneration um so I think one one theory I've heard about that particular part is that they would have just showed part of the shroud. Yes, yes. Rather than unfolding the entire thing. So here comes another detail that's utterly, it's so important for people to know this, right? If you looked at the pictures that the 1978 Sturt Project took of the shroud, you'll notice that there are these very curious crease marks. That the, the cloth itself, because of its material's keeps the crease marks very it has like a memory it's like memory foam almost oh, yeah. and the the pattern is so curious because there's parts that are long strips where there's no folds and then there's two or three folds right next to each other and the uh professor jackson actually was trying to solve the riddle he actually had to write a, a computer program to solve it and it turns out the the folds are actually congruent with a crude pulley system that would have been that would have housed the actual shroud and would have been big enough if you you could mathematically figure it from the fold lines to lift it up to about its waist and and you could see it but this is where it gets really crazy there is a tradition in art history of people painting something called the man of sorrows uh, quoting the the passage of Isaiah you mm-hmm. just mentioned right and it's an image of Jesus typically deceased Mm-hmm. With his hands crossed, much like it is in the shroud, um, the the man of the shroud doesn't have any thumbs. These images of the of the man of sorrows typically don't have thumbs. like the thumbs are tucked. The know? thumbs are tucked, right? That's what, I, yeah. Um, and and there's a whole series of uh, and he's coming out of a of a box. So what what do we make of that? Well, it would stand to reason that if there's Christians, if there's Christian artists at any point during Christian history. If they know that this thing exists, and they know that that's the, the the most precious relic we have, it would stand to reason they would have gone and seen it, and used it for the basis of their own art. And lo and behold, there are many, many people. I mean, it could be a whole other podcast just understanding the art history of this. That and incidentally, far predates the carbon dating. So, what do we what do we make of this? Right. What are they basing these? What are they basing off these paintings of? off of? If it's not off of a picture of the shroud, or, right. or off of their, having seen the shroud, right, right, and why would you include details like that the, are only the on the shroud? Yeah, right. unless you'd seen them, or for example, why why depicts Jesus with his thumbs tucked in? Mm-hmm. That's a detail that no one. It doesn't why, seem why like an obvious thing to do as yeah. a painter. It doesn't seem easier to paint, <laughs> right, right. 
And yet, it's it's in this iconographic tradition. Um, it's, it's astounding. It's utterly astounding. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. No, so, no, no problem. My pleasure. People listening today, what do you want them to take away? Um, I would invite you to start to roll up your sleeves and do a little bit of research. If, if, this, if this conversation has piqued your interest at all, go to www.shroudofturrencenter.com. Um, and there is a, a book that's published um, called A Critical Summary. It is worth your time. It's worth your time. It's published by Dr. John Jackson. He, he's helped in, in compiling that. And it's a very um, rigorous scientific study of the shroud, including the carbon dating. And it's fair to all of those, um, to all of those findings. Um, I might add here, while we're talking about yeah. getting into the evidence, yeah. you have um, a, a life-size copy yes. of the shroud. Yes. And you present on this. Yes. Yes. So if you're in the Archdiocese of Kansas City, Kansas, uh, you can go to schooloffaith.com and, yeah. and just reach out. Because I know you present this at different churches. Or what's the best way to... Yeah, I would say just, just reach out to us online. You, you can know. email me, Sebastian at schooloffaith.com. And, and we can see what we can, what we can do. Excellent. Um, and so, yeah, we've talked about the, the history. Yep. And then I think the theology in terms of that just said this really happened, that this really is a historical event and the reality of the things depicted. Yep. Any other uh, points you think people should take away from it? I think, just to reiterate those things that John Paul II said, um, the Shroud is an invitation to ponder the deepest reality of, of history, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus, and that that's a, a perennial invitation of God seeking our hearts. So to, to take up that that call. Excellent. Let's close in our prayer. Yeah. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the, the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, Spirit as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. St. John Paul II. Pray for us. Amen.